From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, hosting This Week from Washington, D.C. On this week's edition, will we always have Paris, the high-charged battle over Energy Star, why smart cities can hinder economic inclusion, and should you storm your CEO's office? Well, maybe you should knock first, this week on 350. It's May 12th, 2017. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. With me is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy up there in Green Biz East. How's it going, Claire? <laughs> Hello, Joel. <laughs> I am great up here in New Jersey, and you are in D.C. this week. So what's going on there? Well, I just hadn't heard any news out of D.C. lately. It seems so quiet ever since the new administration. I just wanted to come in and just, particularly around the environment and climate change, it's just, it's kind of cricket. So, no, I, it's not why I'm here, obviously. <laughs> I'm really here because uh, this is, uh, May is uh, uh, one of three months where we have our uh, three meetings of the Green Biz Executive Network. That's our peer-to-peer membership group of sustainability executives from big companies. And so this week we're in Washington, D.C., where we had our meeting at the headquarters of National Geographic. Why National Geographic? Are, are they really even a company? Well, well they are and they aren't. Uh, t- a couple years ago in 2015, National Geographic uh, was largely bought, or at least uh, 73% of it was bought by uh, 21st Century Fox, the movie studio and TV network that we all know and love. Um, and uh, so th- it's actually Fox, which is a member of our executive network, that's that's uh, hosting the meeting. But it's really interesting what's going on here because National Geographic uh, is keenly interested in, in obviously in everything having to do with the Earth and climate change in particular. And they're doing a lot of really interesting things from a programming perspective, some of which uh, you know seem at odds with at least the Fox News part of this. So uh, it's been a really enlightening. Uh, uh, session uh, among other, among the other things we talk about at GreenBiz uh, Executive Network to hear what's going on uh, at National Geographic and how they're taking on the the, the great environmental challenges of the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I've been in that building and it is absolutely extraordinary and inspiring. So. Two more meetings. Where are you headed next? Well, next uh, week we're heading up uh, to your neck of the woods, uh, to Princeton, New Jersey, where we're going to be at the headquarters of NRG Energy's brand new uh, LEED certified headquarters. I'm looking forward to seeing what an energy company does to uh, create a uh, energy sipping building. And then the following week, uh, just before Memorial Day, we'll be in uh, outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, the headquarters of Ingersoll Rand, the industrial equipment uh, manufacturer. They make you know, crane air conditioners and a lot of generators and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, and that'll be interesting as well. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll have, uh, uh, among other things, uh, gone to a NASCAR race, which is always an interesting world, probably the extreme opposite of being in Washington, D.C., but maybe not anymore. Right, right. Uh, but how about you? Uh, you're about to plunge into a new adventure. Yeah, well, so sadly, I can't come to Princeton uh, for that for the GBEN meeting, but I will be there in about two weeks. And I am headed next week to Curacao, where I will be doing a lot of uh, diving. Um, actually, and I just have to share with you, one of the 
potential dives that I was was uh, offered uh, when I <laughs> was signing up was a lionfish hunt. Believe it or not, they they actually encourage recreational divers to help with uh, eradicating this invasive species. I don't I don't know if you know much about it, but the lionfish scourge is the scourge of the reefs down in the Caribbean right now. It eats uh, all the other fish. So anyway, I'm headed to Curacao and, and I will be back refreshed and dived out. Didn't I just read a story about uh, some uh, robots that are that are been sent in uh, in the water to actually kill lionfish? They, they actually look little swimming robots that look like lionfish and attract them and then somehow do them in? <laughs> okay, so I don't know about that. I, the, the, the dive that I was going to go on uh, uses the traditional uh, spear and uh, net catching methods. Um, but hey, uh, lionfish makes for some good ceviche, so maybe, maybe it'll become a sustainable source of seafood since there's so many of them. Well, we'll look forward to hearing more about that. But for now, let's take a deep dive into the Week in Review. So Washington is on our minds this week, and not just because I'm uh, here in the nation's capital. It's obviously been a uh, busy week here in, uh, on a lot of fronts, but part of that was with the Paris Agreement and climate change. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that in a few minutes uh, with uh, Lauren Hepler. Uh, but uh, we had a couple of interesting pieces, sort of dueling pieces in a certain mm. kind of way. Uh, the first one was from our editor-at-large, David Crane, who basically uh, said, this is your defining moment, Chief Sustainability Officers. And he suggested that you charge into your CEO's office, pass the uh, the gatekeepers, and you, uh, without an appointment, and um, and he said, once you get there, standing in front of your slack-jawed CEO, taken aback by the aff effrontery of your business, you, uh, first of all, might reintroduce yourself, uh, uh, but also tell them that this is a moral imperative that we and the company stand up for climate change, and the CEO in particular, and particularly the Paris Agreement. Yeah, I, I understand what David was uh, saying with his essay, and I uh, agree with the spirit of it. In other words, use this as a, a, a chance to re-engage. But I guess I, I, I when I read um, Bruno Sarda's uh, article, he's the uh, he's over at Energy. You'll be seeing Bruno next week. Um, his point, I, I, I appreciated that one as well because his point was, hey, you should already be really engaged with your CEO on business value, on on um, being part of the dialogue. So, you know, don't don't use a political moment to to approach your CEO. Take it, pick it back to the business level, and and you know you should already be having this dialogue. You should already be defining it, uh, defining the plans at, that your CEO has, and this should should sort of this should be happening already. So I kind of see I, I see both views, and I, I love David's drama, right? His, you know, use this moment, um, but I I fully I fully understand the practicality of Bruno's point of view. Yeah, and I think it's worth pointing out a couple things. One is that David Crane used to be the CEO of NRG. Uh, wow. Bruno Sarda is the chief sustainability officer, although he came in after right. uh, David Crane left right. the company. And so there is that little bit of drama. And I'll also say for full disclosure that NRG Energy has been a sponsor of this uh, podcast. So there's that. Uh, but given all that, uh, you know, Bruno does make a really good point that that being at the table and, and proving year round, not just at these seminal moments, that 
that as a chief sustainability officer, you need to be have that relationship with the CEO. And so ho- hopefully when these things come up, you don't need to go in and and reintroduce yourself. Right. Um, and that his defining moment um, uh, is is been to earn a place at the table and to get the entire organization to act top to bottom. So that's just an interesting two perspectives on what do you do, uh, how should a chief sustainability officer think about what's going on from the policy perspective uh, with uh, the Paris Agreement and and, and such, and, and how to engage with senior leadership within the company. Hey, maybe it should be the CEO beating down the door of the CSO on this one, right? What, what should we do? What should we do? So, Well, that's, that certainly would be a refreshing uh, change of pace. But I, you know, I also do want to say that, that David Crane's piece is not to be uh, you know, just shunned aside because Bruno made a, a good point. This is a moment for C- CEOs and, and company leaderships and their boards mm-hmm. to step up uh, and be heard. Uh, this has been a, a challenge. And, you know, for all the companies that have, you know, have, made climate commitments, about half of all uh, Fortune 500 companies have some sort of energy or climate commitment now, um, they're really not being heard from. Now, that's changed this week a little bit, and we'll talk about that in a, in a few minutes. Uh, but, but the question is, you know, what took them so long, and how do you break through all the clutter and, and all of the other things that lobbyists and, and companies are interested in around immigration and, and wages and, and taxes and everything else, how do you stand out from that clutter to be heard on climate change? And, and I just think this is just really, these two articles together, I think, are really good food for thought. Absolutely. Meanwhile, there's another issue taking place uh, in Washington around all this, which is around Energy Star and some of the cuts uh, that have been proposed by uh, the Trump administration, uh, particularly around the EPA, although uh, uh, Energy Star is a, is a partnership between the Environmental Protection Agency and the Department of Energy, so EPA DOE. But Energy Star has been one of the great success stories in the business and, and energy and environmental world from the perspective of consumer branding, from company uptake, and from the actual energy and money savings that have resulted from this. Heather, you wrote a piece uh, that ran this week about the the battle over Energy Star. What's going on here? Yeah, so in the uh, the Trump, the White House budget that was proposed uh, back in March, the uh, there were obviously a lot of pretty extensive cuts for anything that had, to, had the C word associated with it, with the climate change. Um, and one of the things that was up for... Uh, up on the chopping block was the Energy Star program. And in fact, many of the energy efficiency programs that were created under George H.W. Uh, Bush. Um, so not not new programs, right? They've been around for a while. And the outcry from the business community uh, about uh, against this was pretty amazing and pretty immediate. A thousand companies have, have signed up with, with various letters to Congress and, you know, trying to basically say, hey, listen, this is a successful program. Uh, it costs about fifty million dollars a year, right? That's in a, in the scheme of things. That's not enough. A lot of money, um, and over time, it has it has been estimated to save four hundred and thirty billion B um, over the lifetime of the program. So, the thing about Energy Star, of course, is that it's very consumer focused, right? Uh, you and I know when we walk into an appliance store that 
something with the Energy Star logo on it is more energy efficient, uses less power. It's going to save me money on my um, electric bill. At the same time, the business world is very familiar with the Energy Star standard, if you will, the label, because it's a very credible way to make a building far more efficient. So the outcry was immediate. And, and as far as this year's budget, uh, that the program seems to be saved, um, all bets are off for next year. What happens with the, the next fiscal year is pretty unclear, but the business world is not going to keep quiet about this one. And there's an opportunity for Congress to really step up and show some leadership here on this one. And, it, and it, it makes sense for them to do so. It's a pretty easy thing to justify. And it's also an opportunity for consumers to step up. Uh, there's a regular survey that's done by something called the Consortium for Energy Efficiency of Consumer Awareness of Energy Star. And the last one I saw, which was conducted a few years ago, said that 87% of American consumers recognize the Energy Star label, and the majority have a high understanding of what that even means, if only that it saves more energy. Mm-hmm. And and, and so that's, uh, I think, just a really important point here. And so, uh, you know, if we're all going to save money uh, from that, why wouldn't we? That's part of what I just don't understand about you know, why this is happening. Companies like it, um, as of 2014, at least $165 billion in private sector investments. You wrote in your article, we're linked to the Energy Star. There's 16,000 Energy Star partners, the organizations that have invested in some way in the certification program. 87% of consumers recognize it, know what it means. Why would we want to kill this? This sounds like one of the most successful government energy programs ever. And so here's the other thing. It's not just a government program. It is a public-private partnership, and that is what makes it so effective. They've put this standard in place. The private sector invests in innovation, and this thing keeps moving forward. It's not a static standard. As soon as the top 25% of buildings or, or appliances in a particular category are certified, the bar is raised. So it keeps moving up and it keeps getting better and better over time. And the other thing I think will, that will be very important in saving this effort is the jobs associated with it. Um, there are, according to various estimates, 2.2 million jobs, million jobs pegged to energy efficiency initiatives. Like so anything from retrofits to upgrades on, on appliances and so forth. So there is a lot of economic activity associated with this. How many coal jobs are there? Not even 100,000. So I, I think it will be very hard for the Trump administration and for those on Capitol Hill to actually allow this to happen. I, it, it just doesn't make any sense. But this is a, 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 this is a fight that will, is far from over. And I believe that, that the business world is showing great leadership. One of the many people who came through the Green Biz office this week was Carla Mays, who's a hard person to explain because uh, she's so diverse in so many things that you do in the networks. But the focus of your work, Carla, is on on uh, civic innovation, uh, particularly diversity and inclusion as it relates to neighborhood development, eco-districts, uh, green building, and all of that. Uh, one of the many th- programs you've been involved with is you've launched the, the first Smart and Sustainable Neighborhood Development Program, uh, launched it in Miami. 
talk a little bit about the need for for diverse professionals in uh, neighborhood development. What we're meaning by smart and sustainable city development is we have lead professionals that are designing and building out, you know, different kinds of communities, infill projects and things. And really, we're experiencing high gentrification displacement of the residents that are currently there. Um, it, it proposes a, a number of problems when we don't have folks from those communities able to be doing the charrettes and to be involved, those business leaders, in, in various building trades and design trades. So what we're talking about is really being able to work with those folks and being able to make sure that they have lead, which can be very expensive and unattainable, making that easier, uh, easier to be available to them so that they can be on project. As we're on project, then we have more of diversity at the C-suite level as well as the small business and small firm level in architecture and design. AIA right now is doing a lot of work around you know, diversity, making sure that there are more diverse architects and planners. APA is the same way. And Green Building Council, we have been really um, working with those folks to you know, making sure that LEED is accessible. So you've got... Uh developers doing sustainable urban projects and, and with all the environmental considerations, but the irony here is, is that they're not looking at the social dimension, which is they're pushing out low-income uh, residents, people of color, and others who should arguably be living and be able to live in the neighborhoods where they've been living, but now that they're sustainable, can no longer afford to live there. And part of this is, you say, is due to the fact that the lead professionals, there's a lead AT accredited professionals, it's expensive, it's not easy to get that if you're a low-income person or if you're not working for one of the big engineering firms, the uh, Perkins and Wills, the, the Arabs and others. Um, so what is your course and how is that going to change things? So we've, we've taken painstakingly, uh, Libby Barnes, who's an architect in Monterey, and, and I have really been working very hard for the last four years on making sure that we've been working with um, all the different folks uh, at, at Green Building Council, making sure that this, this accreditation, that we've got lead faculty teaching, so we're very lucky to have the Spinnaker Group uh, in Florida. We get really behind this. Jonathan Burgess is going to be um, teaching, and he's lead faculty. We're very lucky. We're going to have uh, Eric Corey Freed coming from Eco Districts in Portland, flying down to Miami for our first cohort um, at Florida International University. We Everybody recognizes that if we're going to meet these climate goals, that we're going to have to be more inclusive. And so what we're talking about is that we're going to, we're going to open this tent. This tent's going to get wider, and we're going to be able to, you know, have more folks that are going to be accredited and working on projects. That means we're going to have more projects. These infrastructure projects that, that we're going to have see more transit-oriented developments and transit-oriented communities, and we're going to have those folks on project so that they, you know, we can actually see those projects come to fruition, and we can start to meet those efficiency goals, those sustainability goals, and the economic goals, and we're seeing that money cycle at the local level. One of the other things I thought was really interesting that you were talking about with the lunch we had today uh, with uh, the, the Green Biz team is that this whole idea of smart cities where you're getting, bringing data and connecting everything. And, and again, it's often talked about that it's going to promote resilience and sustainability. And in fact, it's actually uh, in some ways breaking up neighborhoods and pushing people out. And it's, it's actually not being that sustainable. 
Absolutely. So I just, I'm just coming back from New York, from the Smart Cities New York, their inaugural conference where it was focused on people. Very exciting, all, all the different groups. We were talking about the highway system. You know, back in the 50s, we were really excited about the highway system, and then it, the highway system did a lot of ugly. It separated a lot of communities from the central city. It, it really divided economic development, and we saw the, the beginnings of the ghettos and, and a lot of the urban issues that we see today and that we're trying to, you know, mitigate against or we're trying to rebuild or, you know, and trying to come around. So with this program, what we're looking to do is really start to see you know, mitigate some of our negative externalities that are occurring with LEED and with a lot of our sustainable projects. So most of our projects that we're building are luxury high-rises. They're, they're, you know, not inclusive. They're, they're getting a lot of tax abatements and things to do things, but these buildings sometimes are left empty. Because people can't afford to live there. Exactly. And, and we've built for something that we thought if we build it, they will come. But if you've got an apartment that already starts off at $5,000 a month, you know that the most likely it's just going to go up. And then it has to meet, and then does it meet with the worker, the, the workers that have to live in the city and, you know, and are moved back to, you know, move back to the city movement? You know, how does that work when folks, you know, then want to have a family or they, you know, they want to they want to be able to be urbanites, but they want to work, live, and play. Those are the things that we're looking at. Is that you know we're having more diverse professionals from these communities on projects that can inform, that can bring their innovation and their design to better to to these. They can think about the economic development as well as just the architecture of the design, and they can come up with beautiful designs that are culturally relevant that create a circular economy. So this course is being taught now in Miami, the University of Miami School of Engineering is hosting it. What's your plan for this? So our, we're going to be going nationwide. We, we've gotten some calls from Los Angeles and Sacramento. We're looking to work with, you know, uh, we're looking to sign on right now a banking partner. We, you know, I ideally like to sign on one of the banks that do a lot of CRA lending to small businesses. We're in the process of, of trying to develop those relationships. We're also looking to work with the larger firms um, because what we're doing is we're creating a pipeline of, of really skilled individuals. You talk about the large in, larger uh, engineering or d d architecture, which yes. firms? So we, we would like to have a relationship. Of course, you mentioned Perkins and Will. Um, we ARP, we're, you know, those are the folks that, you know, a lot. We want the the larger ones that are doing this work in lead and D as well as eco districts. We're wanting to work with the Turners, you know, uh, Turner Construction, uh, Webcore, uh, Spinnaker. You know, a lot of we're we're in the process of talking with those folks. We want to talk more to other other folks around the country. Our our goal is to literally help these firms to have the talent pool and to get bigger contracts. We you know the president has outlined that. Infrastructure is going to be key in making America great. And so if we're going to make America great, we have to literally have that talent and we have to feed these folks in. 
And so we have, you know, uh, Dave Capelli, myself, Libby Barnes, uh, Michael Cabrero. We, you know, we have been working tirelessly for, you know, a couple of years on this. We're looking for bigger partners um, to, to really expand this. We're looking to take it nationwide. Um, the program is more than just lead in eco districts. It really is about making sure that we have businesses that are certified in, in, their, in their counties and cities and also also that these folks are piped in to the bigger firms. So it's like we, we want lots of subs. We want to work with the minority business development um, agencies in, in different cities around the country. We want to work with other sustainable firms. And we and we want to work with municipalities. So you know we see it as a as a global you know as a global way of, of working on this and really answering the question of more than just diversity. We're looking at the ecosystem, and we're looking at meeting those climate targets. So whether it's Miami with sea level rise, or it's dealing with folks here in Oakland that are dealing with hypergentrification, where we really feel that this is you know can be a real solution to that. We need to get everybody at the table, and that's how we make communities great again. Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, Carla Mays from Mays Civic Innovation, uh, thanks so much for stopping by GreenBiz and telling us about your amazing work. Thank you so much. As we said earlier in the show, we're having our Green Biz Executive Network meeting at the uh, headquarters of National Geographic, this amazing 100-plus-year-old uh, uh, campus right in the middle of Washington, D.C. And right now I'm here with Susan Kolodashek, who runs sustainability at National Geographic. Um, what an amazing place to work, Susan. It really is. I've been blessed for the last 17 years. So what does sustainability, running sustainability, mean at NetGeo? I mean, this is all about sustainability. So what's your piece of all this, and, and, and what's your, your mandate? So the National Geographic Society, like any organization, has a physical presence, and therefore any re reasonable and responsible business needs to think about the impact of their physical existence. So my sustainability efforts start there with uh, the actual place that we are working and the way that we do our business, the tools we use uh, to conduct our operations, and uh, thinking about the impacts and how we can measure them and, and mitigate the negative impacts. And then, of course, beyond the facilities themselves and the way that staff do their jobs, we also think about the impact we have with suppliers and vendors, so we make sure we're asking them, are they thinking about their impact? We want to make sure that they are aware of it, measuring it, and managing it as well. And then beyond that, I'm also always thinking, of course, on how the things that we do and the things that we teach our staff and our suppliers and vendors about, how that helps them to extend the way that they live their lives. So our staff take a lot of the things that we do home and then start to ask their schools and the places of business that they frequent, whether it's a supermarket or their place of worship, saying, have we thought about our water use? Um, why do we still have those lights on when we're not in those rooms? Um, what, where are we getting this food or uh, these office supplies? So it does sound like a lot of what you do is uh, is bottom up. In other words, that you not only uh, you know, talk about what you want to do or, or create systems to do what 
the organization wants to do, but you take signals from the team. You have a lot of green teams. Uh, is that by design, or is it just sort of happened that the people who work at the National Geographic Society are by and large environmentally conscious, is it, or is this is this just another place to work? We're human like everyone. We have we have people who are really into being sustainable. They care about the environment. And we have people who are just trying to get their job done. Uh, it's the same anywhere you go. But, of course, National Geographic has caring for the planet baked into its DNA. So maybe we're a little more geared towards listening to those points of views and working on those points of views. But for the green team, it very much was built in very creatively saying, we care about this stuff. We want to do something here. And let's empower all of our staff to be a part of that and to be not just a part of asking what we're doing, but making those things happen. Mm -hmm. And that's probably been the most powerful thing that we've done in our green team the last few years. So for the things that have happened, tell me something that you're proud of. Exactly that, the empowerment of, uh, I've had so many uh, people who've been part of our green team who've actually improved on their jobs uh, or gone off to other jobs and left us but come back in other positions now because through the green team work they were able to do something they were passionate about that maybe wasn't part of the job they were hired to do, strictly speaking, except that being part of the green team is part of your job here. It's the we expect you to think about the way you do your job. And people were able to expand on their resumes uh, through doing green team events that were important to them personally. We heard from Gary Nell, your president and CEO, uh, spoke to the Green Biz Executive Network uh, this week. Um, seems genuinely bought in and really supportive of of environmental issues in general. Obviously, he has, you have to be do, to be running this organization, but also of your work. Uh, how important is that to what you do? It's incredibly important. Nothing happens if the staff doesn't follow through and believe in what you're doing. But it's hard to make anything happen if your executives aren't buying in and supporting what you do. I mean, it, it takes bottom-up and top-down approaches to make things happen. Well, thanks for your great work and for sharing your space with us this week. Susan Kolodashik, the Head of Sustainability at National Geographic. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. One of the trends we've been watching closely here at GreenBiz is the corporate renewables movement. And there's one organization that's sort of been on the rise and increasingly central to that. It's called the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, or REBA. The group was formed about a year ago by four big uh, nonprofits, BSR, the Rocky Mountain Institute, World Resources Institute, and WWF, the World Wildlife Fund. And the purpose of REBA is to help create a marketplace that links the companies and agencies interested in buying solar and wind with the developers, utilities, and other service providers that can help get the contract signed. So this month marks the official one-year anniversary of REBA, although the organizations have been working on this for longer than that. Is this marriage succeeding? Heather, you wrote about that uh, this week. Um, tell us what's going on with REBA. Yeah, so I loved the fact that these organizations were working on, they've been really working on the corporate procurement issue for a long time, right? The, the, the companies that wanted to buy clean power and the various NGOs involved with this 
Reba Alliance kind of were doing things on their own. And they did, they realized that they really should get together to make their uh, movement, if you will, more effective. And there really is a lot of progress to report, including a very significant increase in the number of corporate buyers who are interested in clean power. But when I interviewed all the, the folks involved with the program, three things really stood out. For a start, whereas many utilities were reluctant to even listen to the commercial accounts of, uh, about a year ago, there has been a huge shift in that mindset. Far more of them are taking a more positive view of the corporate renewables movement and are interested in at least talking about new buying arrangements. That is regardless of whether the utility is in a regulated or deregulated territory. And here is Letha Tani, Director of Innovation for WRI, with some thoughts about this mood shift. What we're finding is the utilities really want to do this. They get that they're at risk of losing their loads and entirely and losing the customer relationship entirely. And they've woken up to that and they figured out that they can play a positive role instead of just a defensive role. And we're really trying to help broker that positive conversation. So Heather, they're talking. That's certainly a great starting point. But what are they doing? Has there been any productive outcome so far? Yeah. So yes, I've been covering technology for a long time. And when I first started covering it, there were a million alliances of this sort. So I was very skeptical when this alliance was introduced about, again, as I said, last May. Um, But there has been really a lot happening. Um, One of the big things, right, I mentioned there were three and the utilities are talking. Well, they're actually doing something about it. More regulated utilities have begun offering green tariffs. These are specifically designed with commercial and industrial customers in mind. Often, they've designed these programs with their input. In April, for example, Omaha Public Power District started talking up a new rate plan that caters specifically to large buyers of renewable energy. So they're they're looking to attract the data center um, operators. And apparently, Facebook, they were involved in helping design the program, and it caters to companies seeking to procure at least 20 megawatts of capacity. So yeah, pretty big buyer. You have to be a pretty big buyer. Um, However, another program to watch comes from Washington State. And there, Puget Sound Energy has introduced a program called Green Direct. And that is intended for cities, public sector organizations, and companies. Uh, And and many of the organizations, actually, um, that have come together to support this program are not quite as big as that Facebook load that I I mentioned before. They have to commit to long-term contracts, which is what enables the utility to invest in the projects. But um, you don't have to have such a significant load. We've got among the people that have uh, signed up for the first project on the program are King County, several cities, including, of course, and uh, Bellevue and local facilities for REI Starbucks, which hopes to include its Washington State stores, and Target. REI, by the way, was the one that really got the the dialogue started years ago, actually. And here is more on green tariffs from WRI's Tawny. There are a couple of different styles of green tariffs. And what Omaha Public Power has done is big load off, you know, a big meter, very much suited to that part of the market, that market segment. So I'd say there's two things that are notable about it. The first is, it's public power. It's the first time public power has really jumped into this game in a big way. 
there's been sort of one-on-one conversations between public power and the data centers across the West. You know, TVA has done individual deals with Google, and there's been sort of beginning steps, but this is the first time public power has put in a clear tariff with a clear offering um, and really gone out and been public about it, that, you know, this is how we're going to attract new business to the region. This is part of our economic development for Nebraska. This is right. There's a lot of sort of vertical political agreement about this is the direction we want to go. Um, and so I think um, I think all of that is a marker for public power really coming to the table. And I expect American Public Power Association to profile this at their big annual meeting this summer. Um, I think it will be a bellwether for other public power agencies to say, oh, oh, okay, now I see how we do this. Okay. Um, And for that conversation in the public power part of the U.S. electricity sector to really get a big bump out of this. Because often, just because an investor-owned utility does something doesn't mean public power is particularly interested in doing it, feels like they can replicate it. And there tends to be kind of a bifurcation between the two business models, the two communities of practice. And um, so that, that's one big, imp- I think, important piece of OPPD. Um, and I think the second important piece is it's a... It's a it's an iteration of what Dominion and Amazon have done together um, that, you know, what Amazon and Dominion did together was with their market-based rate was really powerful in the PJM market. It works really well for Amazon. They've done a couple hundred megawatts of deals with Dominion. This takes it a step further and bakes capacity into the transaction in a way that Dominion doesn't. And so it, it gives, more certainty to the customers that are engaged in it. So it really lets them take advantage of the low-cost wind in the region and offset some of the market risks that are also playing out in in the wholesale markets today. So Heather, I think it's really interesting that cities were some of the first subscribers to Green Direct, the Puget Sound program. Are cities, municipalities also part of the REBA program and their agenda? Yeah, that is another one of the big shifts in the last 12 months. When the REBA dialogue started, it involved a lot of very large corporate energy organizations, but very few cities or smaller businesses. What's happening now is that some of the products that are emerging are appropriate for those smaller organizations. You see universities beginning to ask questions, as well as healthcare uh, providers. And in the coming year, you should expect to see far more cities become involved to the extent that their state regulatory organizations allow it, of course. This dovetails with the growing interest among many mayors in developing strategies to combat climate change. So it's all part and parcel of that, of that movement. Here is some perspective from Marty Spitzer, Senior Director of Climate and Renewable Energy for the World Wildlife Fund. I think it's the same for the cities as it is for the corporates. There are a lot of programs out there now the Global Covenant of Mayors, the Mayor's National Climate Action Agenda that have mobilized cities to take action and make commitments. And the same is for uh, universities, that there, is, there are leaders across all of these sectors who are making large commitments 
to take action on climate change. And any organization that does that is going to need large volumes of renewable energy. And they all come to that same conclusion. And so making it easy to do that for all of these entities is really a major driver for WWF in all of this work. Well, this is really interesting, and we'll be watching, Reba. In fact, I would be remiss if I didn't plug the fact that the second annual Reba Summit, the member gathering of that organization, will be held uh, at Verge 17, September 17th to 19th in Santa Clara, California. Uh, this is the day and a half just leading up to the Verge conference. Uh, so it's going to be a really interesting group of companies coming together to talk about renewable energy procurement, and then that theme will continue throughout Verge. So more about Reba there. But for now, thanks for the report, Heather. Thanks, Joel. Well, it has certainly been a roller coaster of a week for anyone following the debate about whether the United States will stay committed to the Paris climate deal. However, on Tuesday, it was announced that President Donald Trump will not immediately withdraw from the 2015 Global Agreement. It's on again, it's off again, it's on again. Here to update us on all of that is senior writer Lauren Hepler. Hello, Lauren. Hi, Heather. How's it going? Okay. Thanks for joining us. So, Lauren, what's up? What's happening? Yeah, as you alluded to, this has definitely been a moving target. At the beginning of the week, it was reported that U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Agreement what Donald Trump on the campaign trail had referred to a couple times as uh, canceling the Paris Agreement uh, was imminent. But then by Tuesday morning, it was a decision was going to come before the G7 Economic Summit later this month in Italy. By Tuesday afternoon, the decision had been pushed off indefinitely until after the G7. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do we know what's holding the White House up from making a decision? What's, why are they waffling so much? This is definitely the, the big question. And multiple sources told me yesterday that predicting the next move for this administration has proven difficult to do on a lot of issues. But what we do know is that there's a lot of external pressure coming down on the Paris Agreement. Companies like Apple, Google, a lot of sort of the usual suspects on clean energy and climate advocacy, but also religious groups, activists, sort of the whole range of civil society uh, have sort of been coming out of the woodwork to say, hey, this would be a major mistake on the international stage. Um, the companies I was alluding to, Apple and Google and others, actually uh, were behind a six-figure ad campaign this week that was orchestrated in part by the Sustainable Finance Group series. Uh, one of my favorites was an ad that Tiffany & Co., the, the famous jeweler, ran that started out by simply saying, we're still in. And I'll bet it was Tiffany Blue, too, right? <laughs> Yes, on Twitter, it did have the robin's egg blue, so staying on brand while you're <laughs> supporting climate policy, I guess. Um, but another company that's gotten into the fray that I don't know that I necessarily would have expected is the North Face. Um, so obviously, this is the famous outdoors company, so lots of different gear and apparel. Um, so both they and their parent company, VF Corp, have been outspoken this week. I talked to North Face Senior Sustainability Manager James Rogers about what compelled the company to speak out in support of the Paris deal. You know, if you look back at our history, the North Face was founded on a love for the outdoors. And we make products that allow people to go outside and enjoy our outdoor playgrounds. So we feel there's a natural connection to the outdoors and there's an inherent responsibility to protect those outdoor places so that people can continue to go out and enjoy those places. 
And therefore, addressing climate change is um, not only the best interest of our company, it, it helps us stay competitive, but it's, it's thinking about our athletes and future generations and ensuring that they have places to go, enjoy, and explore. Even though we are a U.S.-based company, we're a global company, and climate change is a global issue, and people use our products all over the world. So we don't just think about protecting playgrounds in our immediate vicinity. We think about it all over. It's a global issue. Um, climate change impacts communities all over the world. Um, now, the nitty-gritty of the actual policy was definitely um, something we didn't get into, but we understand conceptually where we need to be, what are the consequences of climate change, and that strong international climate legislation helps combat that issue. So, Lauren, how, uh, how companies will continue to advocate, along with the religious groups, activists, and others that you mentioned, is definitely something to keep an eye on. Uh, we'll, we'll be watching that closely. But I also wanted to ask you about the stakes here. What would it mean if the U.S. pulled out of the Paris Agreement? It's a good question, and it definitely depends on sort of how you look at it. So from an on-the-ground policy perspective, the Paris Agreement commits the U.S. to concrete emissions reduction goals, along with all the other countries that signed on, um, and that ostensibly would help bolster the market for clean technology. Uh, one of the big themes that the companies we've seen speaking out say is that they're, they're looking for policy certainty from the federal government in terms of, hey, should we go ahead and invest in some of these clean technologies? That's also the case with large investors. Big banks have been sort of circling the Paris Agreement, wondering how to cash in on all of this as well. Um, but the U.S. is also crucial to a planned $100 billion climate fund that's laid out in the Paris Agreement ostensibly to help reduce the impacts of climate change on more vulnerable developing nations. So sort of the international domino effects, if the U.S. were to pull out, are definitely concerning, though it is definitely worth noting that countries, including China, have already stepped up to say that they're willing to sort of take the lead on the Paris Agreement if the U.S. does withdraw. Um, but that sort of brings to mind this higher level issue, which Aaron Kramer, who's the CEO of Business for Social Responsibility or the nonprofit BSR, told me is very much a concern. And that's sort of about America's much broader political, moral and economic credibility on the world stage. So here's what he had to say about that. Progress on climate globally depends uh, in no small part on American leadership. And the absence of American leadership will absolutely serve as license for some countries that are not that strongly committed to pull back uh, on their commitments. So that, that's, that's uh, issue number one. Uh, more broadly, it, it's absolutely clear also that American leadership on other topics internationally will be undermined if America is viewed as an outlier on the Paris Agreement. And there are, if America withdraws, America will be with, I'm forgetting the two countries, I think it's, um, I don't know, Uzbekistan and, and Nicaragua, who, who are not part of this agreement. And that will, um, that will seriously diminish American credibility and American influence around the world. So there's, uh, the, this is very important for the obvious reasons related to climate. It's also very important for the broader question of American leadership in the world. Okay, so we know that the Paris Agreement is not the only environmental policy in the crosshairs for the Trump administration. 
What other issues should companies be watching? Uh, One other issue that the North Face is tracking closely is protections for federal land. But there are a number of specific policies and individual projects like the Dakota Access Pipeline, obviously being a very high profile example, that are still in play. Uh, You've got water protections, renewable energy adoption, like I mentioned, and several other big issues that are sort of still up for debate at the federal level. Though how much states and cities will come into play here will also be something that's interesting to track. Um, In the meantime, though, there's still ultimately this question of what's going to happen with the Paris Agreement. I mentioned earlier on that it had been pushed out indefinitely, but we really don't know what that means. This timeline has been shifting a lot. Um, So here's Aaron Kramer from BSR one last time on what still may be to come with the Paris Agreement and environmental policies more broadly. There is a very broad assault on a number of, uh, of environmental steps that are uh, actually very important to building the 21st century economy and to allow for, uh, you know, for, for innovation, to allow for American competitiveness in new technologies, to enable uh, public health, which business relies upon. So the agenda is quite large. The, the sad fact is that the Trump administration is isolating itself from the mainstream of American institutions on environmental questions, including climate. It's isolating itself, as I said, from the national security community. It's isolating itself from the business community. It's isolating itself from investors. And it's isolating itself from scientific consensus. And it is therefore up to uh, business leaders to help ensure that the United States stays on track. I think the good news is that business is moving and wants to move. And we just we really need policy frameworks that create a smoother glide path for those commitments. Let's just say it's it's a dynamic environment inside the White House, and it's a little bit hard uh, to predict when decisions will be made, how they'll be made, and and quite frankly, who the ultimate decision makers are going to be. That's hard hard to track. Ah, yes. So we will continue to watch this closely. And Lauren, thank you for being on top of it this week. Thank you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events mentioned in this episode. Thanks to this week's podcast director, Stephanie Joyce. You can contact us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. From all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening.